So the reading's from Hebrews 12, and it's verses 4 to 13. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us, for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. Uh, My name's Phil. I'm one of the ministers here. Uh, If you're here for the first time, um, you should have a Bible somewhere near you. If you want to keep it open at page 1,210, we'll be working through this passage together. I'm just going to pray before we do that. Father, there are hard things in this passage And so I pray that you would give us soft hearts that are willing to listen to you and learn from you. And Father, we pray that we would share your perspective, your understanding, and that our lives, um, in our lives, we would have a desperate desire to be pleasing to you. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you saw Euromillions lottery. You saw what it was, 85 million on Friday. Anybody here win it? No, you wouldn't be here if you did, would you? uh, Imagine what you can buy with 85 million pounds. 85 million pounds. Caribbean island. And a private jet to get you there. Amazing. Or you could buy a house in zone one. (laughs) And a bicycle to get you around. It's... you basically get it by paying, I don't know, whatever it is, one pound, two pounds uh, for the lottery. But what if you were told you will definitely win it if you do? What would you be willing to do for 85 million quid? If you run a marathon, yeah, you know, barefoot. What about uh, if you give up a kidney? You got two of them. Would you give a kidney for 85 million? It's a lot of students thinking that would be one way to clear the debt. <laughs> <laughs> Lose a, a limb. Uh, slightly preposterous, isn't it? But it is amazing what we'll do for things we really, really want. So for the body we want, we're willing to kill ourselves in the gym. As you can see, <laughs> I do that an awful lot. I'm serious. Uh, uh, or we go on ridiculous diets. We refuse to eat all manner of things we desperately want because I want that body. 
or we go without foreign holidays, we go without takeaway food, we go without all manner of things to save up the money for the deposit so that we can finally own our own place. Or we flog ourselves at work or on a degree course, work through the night, ignore the socialising, turn down all sorts of relationships and opportunities because we want that first or we want that promotion. It's amazing what we'll do for things we really want. Uh, I know two guys who pretty much, they went voluntarily through physical and mental torture. They, it's the only way to describe what they willingly decided to do. They were, they allowed themselves to be tortured for a year. Voluntarily. Because they wanted to join the SAS. And they were pleased to go through everything. Because it meant they got to be SAS soldiers. And Hebrews 12 tells us that there is something so good, so valuable, so extraordinarily amazing that it is worth suffering anything to get it. And that thing is holiness, spiritual maturity, becoming more like Jesus Christ. Now this is a hard teaching for us because to be perfectly honest, Becoming a bit more like Jesus doesn't really have the same appeal as owning a Caribbean island. (laughs) I can understand suffering to get that, but suffering to become a bit more like Jesus? Seriously? And always the challenge comes when God's word says something that is difficult, that I struggle to get my head around, that feels like, hang on, I, I didn't think God was like that. I always have to decide... Will I submit to God? Will I let God be God and say what he wants and be who he wants? Or will I say, I will only accept God's word where I agree with it. If I don't like what it says there, then I just move on to the next page. Which is to say, I am God. I get to decide what God says and who he is. But instead, this passage, uh, as always, challenges us to let God be God. We need to recognize that Maybe, maybe God's word says some things that you and I struggle with because there are things that God understands that my brain doesn't. There are things that God knows about me and about the world that I just don't know. And so we have to be humble if we're to listen to God's word. And we have to be especially humble where it says things we find difficult. Uh, I want to spend a bit less time than usual uh, going through the passage, uh, looking at what it means, because I want to spend a bit more time thinking about the implications of it, the the questions it raises, and the the implications for how we live. There'll also, of course, be uh, time to ask some questions um, uh, a few minutes after the sermon. But there is basically one big question, uh, one big lesson. God disciplines us to make us holy. You can see it there in verse 4, page 1,210. In your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, he's saying, look, following Jesus has not yet cost you that much. Following Jesus has not yet cost you that much. Now, there are two senses in which he uses the word sin here. You'll see in verse 4. One is internal and the other is external. Sin is your enemy. But sin is both an external and an internal enemy. So do you remember at the end of chapter 10, if you uh, flick back a page, you'll see um, 10.32 to 34. 
Sin is an external enemy there. Sin prompts other people to hate these Christians because they follow Jesus. So they're mocked, they're insulted, they're thrown in prison. Their property is looted because they follow Jesus. Sin is an external enemy. But here also we see um, in this passage, sin is an internal enemy. So you can see uh, God rebuking you, verse 5. It's obvious that there are issues here about uh, things that are wrong with us that God is raising. So sin is also an internal enemy that we battle with. You know, it's the selfish, the impure, the immature, the foolish worldly desires that I know in my heart. If I'm trying to follow Jesus, I face difficulty in two directions. One is internal, the desires of my heart that just don't want to put Jesus first. The other is external, a world that wants me to go a different way and sometimes can be quite brutal about that. And the writer's point to these relatively young Christians is, look, it's a battle. Being a Christian is a struggle, a race, a marathon, a battle, but it hasn't yet been that hard. (laughs) They've had their homes looted. And yet he says, you haven't yet got to the point when you're shedding blood. It's going to get hotter and harder in the future. And he says in verses 5 to 6, you need to start viewing the hardships that have already come upon you, not as the worst thing imaginable, but as God's loving discipline. Look with me at verse 5. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. He's quoting a section from Proverbs 3 about uh, how a child, a boy or a girl, can grow up a mature and wise and responsible adult who can make the best of life in this world and who can live a full and a happy existence. He says one of the things you need if you're going to grow up well is you need parents who will discipline you, not just indulge your every whim. And so when the Bible talks about discipline, you can summarize it this way. It's basically painful stuff we should learn from. Painful stuff we should learn from. That's basically what discipline means. There's one key distinction, though, before we move on, which is that there are two sort of types of discipline, if you like. There's neutral discipline and there's naughty discipline. Neutral discipline is just painful stuff you go through, and it's not because you've done anything wrong. It's like if you've uh, ever played sport, um, it's not because you've been naughty that the coach pushes you until you want to vomit. It's because that's how you become fitter and stronger and better. It's neutral. There's nothing morally you've done wrong that's caused it. It's just if you're going to get strong and fit, you need to be pushed hard. Then there is naughty discipline, which is the parental smack when you've, you know, when to take something thoroughly theoretical, um, I say of um, hit my little sister as if um, she kicks and bites, and she's in her thirties. But. Um, uh, you know, we get that. There's that sort of discipline too. There's neutral and there's naughty. And we've just got to be careful that we're, we're clear because he's talking about both in this passage. But we need to make sure uh, so, that some of the time he's talking about God responding to my sin and some of the time he's just saying God is training me. Both are involved here. Okay, so uh, discipline means painful things we should learn from, painful things that God, our loving Father, uses to drive us away from sin and to wake us up when we're, we're just comfortably sleeping in sin. Um, how is that encouraging, though? Do you see verse 5? 
you've forgotten that word of encouragement. I mean, it's basically what he's saying is, being a Christian is very hard. It's a long, difficult race, he writes. And the battle with your sinful desires is brutal. But don't worry. There's encouragement. You're going to suffer some really painful stuff. (laughs) You do a funny line of encouragement. We'll understand, though, what he means only when we see why it should be encouraging. It's not encouraging because we like to suffer. We're not meant to like suffering. That's clear from uh, from the end of this passage where he says, verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. It's not that we should become masochists. But verses 7 to 13 tell us two things. One, it is a badge of fatherly love. And two, it is worth it. It's a badge of fatherly love and it is worth it. So first, being disciplined is a badge of fatherly love. Verse 5, we'll start just back there. You've forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. Then verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Now, when the Bible talks about sons in a passage like this, it doesn't mean males. It means those who share in God's inheritance. So this, is, this refers to sons and daughters of God. You think, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, just, you want me to believe that I'm suffering and that's a sign that God loves me like a son. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm following, to be perfectly honest. What we need to do, though, is remember a couple of things. Uh, first, is what it says in Hebrews 5.8. Flick back with me. We may struggle to believe that a proof God treats you as a son or daughter is that he disciplines us. But then we read Hebrews 5.8 of Jesus. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. He literally, he disciplined obedience from what he suffered. He grew as a man by suffering. Which is basically to say, God did not send Jesus to the cross at the age of 12. He probably would not have got through everything at the age of 12. He was a boy. God led Jesus through a whole load of growing experiences and lesser trials so that when the almighty, unimaginable, unbearable trial came, he was able to stand firm and to endure to the end and bring us salvation. God prepared Jesus so that he was ready. God disciplined Jesus so that he was strong enough. God loved him so he didn't let him face the cross without being ready. And the problem is we live in such a self-indulgent age that we cannot imagine that love can coexist with discipline. We think love has to always be affirming, always indulging, never challenging. You know, somebody says, I really think what you're doing is wrong. We say, I thought you were my friend. How can you say that? I really disagree with what you're doing, but I thought you loved me. The truth is that if we love, we will challenge it's interesting, in, uh, in Romans 1, as Paul is uh, talking about uh, God's wrath, his judgment being poured out in the world, one of the signs in Romans 1, 18 to 32, is that God just lets us get on with it. He says, you can do what you like. 
And that's not a sign that God loves humanity. It's a sign that God's judgment has been poured on humanity. Fathers who love their children discipline them so that they are ready for the challenges they will face in later life. I mean, can you imagine how self-centered, ugly of character and useless I would be if my parents had only ever affirmed me? That's what you'd like to do? That's fine. Whatever you want. Can you imagine how I, or unless you're very different from me, any of us would have turned out if a parent only ever affirmed and indulged? And if Jesus, perfect Jesus, needed discipline, training, to make sure he was fit and ready and strong and mature enough to face his mission for life, what makes us think that we don't need God's training? Discipline is a badge of God's fatherly love. It's because he treats you as a son and a daughter that he loves, that he won't let you face the great mission of your life, serving God out in a difficult and dangerous world without training you, toughening you, strengthening you, so that you'll withstand, so that you'll be able to be useful, so that you can serve. But as well as being a badge of fatherly love, discipline is also worth it. Verses 9 to 11. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. So he argues from the lesser to the greater, uh, the difference between our parents and God's parents. Now look, um, in a group this size, I'm sure some of us will have had parents who just weren't there. And others of us probably had parents who treated us so badly that we wish they hadn't been there. Uh, But I guess we can all recognise that uh, for all their faults, where parents are trying to do what's right... We, we respect them for disciplining us. We respect them for trying to, to battle against the toddler tantrums and the teenage stupidity and trying to help us grow and mature. You know, as a child, you don't. As a child, you know, after I've been smacked on the bottom for probably doing nothing wrong at all, the, I, I was ready to phone Childline and would have told you my parents were worse than Hitler. With the benefit of passing years... It's amazing how my perspective may have changed on these things. I think there may have been one or two occasions on which they were justified for telling me off. Maybe. And the truth is, I'm really grateful to my parents. I'm so grateful that they disciplined me. And I know it would have cost them to have me hating and spitting with anger at them. must have been horrific. But they loved me enough that they were willing to put up with it to do me good. And they, verse 10, they tried to do us good. And we respect them. God does us good. He knows what he's doing. God's not doing his best. God is doing the best. Full stop. And so we ought to respect him as he lovingly teaches and disciplines us through life. And we hate the experience, but we must look to the results. Verse 11 Verse 10, we share in his holiness. That's why God disciplines us, for our good that we may share in his holiness. Verse 11, later on it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained. 
Now, if your starting point in life, if your sort of way of looking at people is that we are all inherently good, and the great need of humans is to be affirmed and to learn to accept ourselves and embrace who we are, then this is just nuts. But if you'll accept that I'm a work in progress, that there's a lot of selfishness, there's a lot of impurity and ugliness bedded deep in my heart, then the idea that God would work on me becomes a wonderful truth. We are works in progress, and God our Father is working on us, and that is good news. And the truth is, um, I'm not that old, but as I look back on my Christian life, and I, I kind of wish this wasn't the truth, but it is. The times I've grown, you know, the times when I've learned to be a bit more humble, a bit less proud, a bit less lustful, a bit less obsessed with getting more stuff, a bit less concerned about what other people think about me and making them love me. The times when I've really grown and changed for the better have been brutal, hard times. I wish that wasn't the case, but it, it is. And the big point of this passage is that God loves us. And because he loves us, he disciplines us to make us more like Jesus. Okay, that's the big deal. Let's turn to think two major questions that I think flow out of it and three implications as well. The first major question is, hang on a second. Um, At the cross, you keep telling us Jesus pays for all our sins. And now I'm being told there's a whole load of sins I pay for. What's that about? How can God punish me if Jesus had taken the punishment? It's a good question. Shows we're thinking if that's what you thought. Well, here's the thing. Jesus does take all the punishment. We've seen in uh, in Hebrews that he's the perfect sacrifice and the great high priest. Right now in heaven, Jesus is standing before the throne of God with scars on his hands and his feet that say to everybody in the heavenly court, the sins of my people have been paid for in my blood. It's what Jesus' scars proclaim for all eternity. You're not being punished for your sins. It's not what this passage says. But when a word like punishment is used in verse 6, it's being used not in a technical judicial sense. It's saying discipline is punishment in the sense that it feels a lot like punishment. And it is in response to sin, but it's not the judge's response of retribution. This debt must be paid. This crime must be atoned for. This deed must be punished. It's the father's response of I must teach you to turn away from this sin. It is so damaging. So God is not punishing us in that judge sense. God the Father is disciplining us in a loving sense. Fatherly correction, not judicial punishment. Uh, there's a there's a beautifully poetic passage in one of the Puritan writers, uh, Samuel Bolton, where he captures this. It's up on the screen. Christ endured the great shower of wrath, the black, dismal hours of displeasure for sin. That which falls upon us is a sunshine shower, warmth with wet, wet with the warmth of his love to make us fruitful and humble. Christ drank the dregs of that bitter cup so much as as would damn us, 
and left us only so much to drink as would humble us for our sin. That which the believer suffers for sin is not penal, arising from vindictive justice, but medicinal, arising from a fatherly love. It is his medicine, not his punishment, his chastisement, not his sentence, his correction, not his condemnation. God is not punishing us as a judge. He's turning us from sins as a father. That leads to another question. Well, if you're saying some discipline is... Uh, a response to sin. Obviously not all, as we said, there's the sort of the training, the athletic training sort of discipline, neutral discipline, but some is a response to sin. Does that mean then that the more I suffer, the harder my life is, the more sinful I must be? I must just have a lot more rough edges for God to knock off? No. And in case that wasn't clear, no. And in case you don't believe me, the life of Jesus is a career-ending tackle for that idea. It just, it leaves it in a broken heap. Because Jesus, how many sins? Put up a hand if you can think of a single time Jesus sinned. And his life was just easy. The hardest life ever lived by the most perfect man who ever lived. The whole book of Job, in one sense, is there to teach us we cannot draw a link between how hard someone's life is and how good or how sinful they are. We simply can't do that. Now, if I look at porn on the internet, and that breaches my company's IT policy, and I lose my job, then I've suffered because of my sin, and I've been disciplined by God. And if that discipline drives me away from uh, from the sin of lust, then I can say, God disciplined me and I know exactly what sin I was being disciplined for. But we're never, ever told in the Bible that we can draw this general link between those who suffer most or obviously those who have most sin to discipline. It doesn't work like that. And how on earth would that be an encouragement? I mean, we know that can't be right because verse 5 said, this word is a word of encouragement. It's not a word of encouragement if it says, the more you suffer, the worse you are. Feeling encouraged? Of course not. Okay. You may have other questions. We'll be plenty of time to ask them afterwards. But it's not, it doesn't contradict that Jesus' death pays for our sins on the cross. And we're not to assume that the worse uh, the more we suffer, the worse we are. It doesn't work like that. Uh, let me talk about three positive implications for us, though, uh, as we close. Firstly, is for suffering. This is the first implication, how we think about suffering. Be encouraged. None of it is pointless. Suffering cuts, and sometimes it cuts deeply. But God is a surgeon, not a mugger. When he cuts, it's to cut out cancer, not to cause pain. Now, we've got to be very, very careful at this point. Some Christians will say we can know what sin God is trying to cut out from this particular sort of suffering. Uh, So the 17th century pastor Cotton Mather writes in his diary in 1697, I had a heavy cold in January, which was because of a cold indisposition towards God. And he warns a church that was destroyed by fire in Boston that it's God's warning against the fiery sins of lust and contention. He must have been a barrel of laughs, old Cotton Mather. Uh, but his ideas are not biblical, they are bonkers. 
the Bible never tells us that we'll be able to, to work it like that. Like I said, if you got, you know, if you, if you speed 100 miles an hour through a 30 zone and you lose your license, sin, suffering, it's pretty obvious. But most of the time it doesn't work like that and we're not to try and look at it that way. Instead, what we are to do, and Hebrews 12 tells us, is that given that we know that one of God's main purposes in suffering is to use it to wake us up if we've fallen asleep in sin or to drive us away from sin, well, when suffering hits, one of the things, one of the things I'll do is pray, God, please will you take this suffering away? But also, God, if I am being blind to you, if I am being deaf to your voice in Scripture, if I am hot-headedly running away in sin, please, would you wake me up? Would you turn me back? It may well be, an awful lot of the time, we'll conclude like Job, no, actually, I'm not. I'm just suffering because this world is a hard place. In which case, I'll thank the Lord Jesus that he's with me in suffering. I'll thank the Lord Jesus that he's gone to prepare a place where there'll be no suffering. And I'll thank the Lord Jesus that no suffering is ever useless in God's purposes. And I'll thank the Lord Jesus. And here we tread softly. Suffering is not the worst thing that can happen to me in this life. And that brings us to uh, sin and happiness, because this passage forces us to have a very radical rethink on the way that we uh, think about sin and happiness. See, most of us are uncomfortable with the thought that God uses hard, painful things to drive us away from sin, because we think God loves me, and if God loves me, he wants me to be happy, and when I'm hurt, I'm not happy. So what is God doing? Our problem is we have a warped view of sin. I think that most of us who would call ourselves Christians here, we think that the the kind of, once the big sins are out of the way, the little sins that lurk in my heart, the sort of gossip, the materialism, the worldliness, the pride, the lust, we think of it as like sugar. It's not ideal, but it's not that serious. I probably should cut down, in fairness, I keep being told that, but it's hardly going to kill me unless I go really over the top. It's not like sugar. It's like heroin. The very real pleasure blinds us to what it's doing inside, rotting, eating, and killing us. Sin is not like sugar, it is like heroin. And God loves you, and God wants you to be happy, and so God does not want you sinning. Psalm 16.11 says, You will fill me with joy in your presence. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When we sin, I'm saying, I'm going this way. Away from God, God who invented chocolate, sex, music, laughter, sunshine, snow. Basically, anything that you think you really want is on God's side. When I sin, I'm walking away from him. I'm walking away from pleasure, away from happiness. And one day, one day we'll understand that holiness is happiness. Holiness is happiness. And if we get that at all down here, we will want God to get rid of every last drop of remaining sin. I've visited a few friends uh, in hospital who've had cancer. Let me tell you a conversation that doesn't tend to happen. Treatment comes to an end. Doctor comes in after the operation. 
says, well, uh, we got rid of most of the major tumours, so um, you're free to go. <laughs> Can you imagine getting up and just saying, okay, well, if the big ones are gone, that's probably fine then. Take off the tubes, a few little tumours, I'm sure it'll be all right. You don't do that with cancer. You say, no, what you, no you're trying to kill me. I want every tiny little tumour, every cell out. I don't care what chemo you've got to pump into me. Get rid of it, kill it, get it gone before it kills me. That's how we think about cancer. And that is how God thinks about sin. And it's how we would if we saw it truly. Uh, the great preacher John Stott, who died recently and uh, preached up at All Souls for many, many years, wrote this, Physical affliction, the apostle seems to be saying, actually has the effect of making us stop sinning. That being so, I sometimes wonder if the real test of our hunger for holiness is our willingness to experience any degree of suffering, if only thereby God will make us holy. Finally, of course, every time the Bible challenges our thinking, what it really boils down to is, what do I think of the character of God? That's what all these questions really relate to. What image have I got of God in my mind? Please, please don't get up and leave with the vision of God as this abusive parent sat up there in heaven flinging thunderbolts down on poor children, inflicting suffering willy-nilly. God is not like that. God is love. He sent his son to die on a cross for us. But God knows that this is a very dangerous and difficult world. And God knows that our hearts are full of sinful desires. And so God will not just let us wander blindly in the world. God trains and disciplines us. And God knows that sin is not fun and sin is not sugar. Sin is cancer and sin is heroin. And so God will cut it out of us. God knows that we won't always understand that, and so God's word explains it to us. See, as, as awful as it is to visit an adult friend on a cancer ward, if you go into a, um, some hospitals in London, they have a kid's cancer ward, and that is a far worse place. Because you have these poor little children who cannot understand why, why Mum, Dad, why would you leave me in here? It hurts when they put things in my mouth it makes me sick why they, they, it hurts when they put needles in me please take me home why are you leaving me here if you love me and the parents just can't explain to a little child that i can't take you home because you're very ill because little children just don't get that and i'm afraid that you and i so often are like little children god god it hurts why is it why are you not why won't you stop this you're meant to be good. You're meant to be my father. Why is this? Why? What's going on? And the problem is we, we don't understand. We can't see. But God is good. God proves his goodness at the cross. And one day we will, as we said a couple of weeks ago, we will taste and see and touch and hear God's goodness for all eternity. In the meantime, the, the old Puritans would encourage us to kiss the rod was their phrase. Just to say that they understood when suffering was pounding us. It wasn't the fickle hand of fate just beating us. They knew that there was a loving Heavenly Father who was pounding sin 
And so they said, as painful as it is, I learned to kiss the rod. I learned to trust God that although I hate this, I can't understand it. I know you're good and I will trust you in this. We don't grumble against God. We we trust that God knows the race is long and hard. And so God is training me so that I'll keep going to the end. God knows that sin is trivial and so God is being good enough to drive me away from it. God knows that at the end of the journey is a paradise so full of adventure and excitement and laughter and fun and rest and refreshment and delight that he knows it's worth doing anything to make sure I get there safely. And God knows that the more... I turn away from sinful appetites here. The more I develop an appetite for God now, the more I'll enjoy eternity. And so God encourages us, verse 12, to strengthen our feeble arms and weak knees, to make level paths for our feet, turn away from sin, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, there will be no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers down here. Trust the Lord. He is good and he disciplines us for our good. Let me pray. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to hear these words rightly. Uh, Some of us are going through uh, difficult times of suffering at the moment and we pray that uh, uh, we would not feel despair. We would not um, feel guilt thinking that it must be because of sin. But Father, we pray that in your kindness that you would use the suffering that we know comes in this life to drive us from our sin so that we might not be killed by it, corrupted by it, ruined by it. Father, help us to believe you, to trust you, and to long for heaven so much that we are willing to kiss the rod now. Amen.